0: Dependent researchers, skeptics, and all of humankind, Shadow Citizen. Shadow Citizen will explore the shadows of an alternate reality. Your hosts, Rachel L. McIntosh.
1: everyone. I'm Rachel L. McIntosh. I'm your host of Shadow Citizen, and this week I'm going to be speaking with Rex Bradford. He's the senior archivist at the Mary Farrell Foundation, and the reason why I wanted to talk with him is because he showed up in a film that I interviewed the director of recently on this show. Um, the film is called The Searchers, and you could go to that website, thesearchersfilm.com. And you'll see a, like a, a whole thing. A de- um, what do you call them? A movie clip at the beginning, and you'll see a whole arc like an archive of what they are into. The film is about people that have devoted their lives to researching the death of John F. Kennedy. And the guest tonight, Rex Bradford, he is like I said, the senior archivist at the Mary Farrell Foundation, which is devoted to preserving the legacy of. JFK assassination documents and Rex are you online right now
0: I'm right here can you hear me
1: hey thanks <laughs> okay. for being with us Rex sure. this is wonderful no oh problem. good I'm happy to do it oh good and thank you so much for showing up the other night in Providence Rhode Island at the screening of the searchers that was fantastic for everybody out in the audience we did a screening of the movie The Searchers. And Rex showed up afterwards with the um, director of the film, Randy Benson, and they did a very small, um, like a group discussion afterwards. And that's why I wanted to have him on to tell us why it's important. The whole thing about the JFK documents being released and what this means to you as a senior archivist at the Mary Farrell Foundation. On top of it, first off, we should probably tell people what the Mary Farrell Foundation is. So go sure, ahead, tell people sure, happy
0: to. Um, so I'm actually the president of the foundation now. It's a very small nonprofit foundation, and uh, the main thing we do is run a website at www.maryfarrell.org. F e r r e l l, and um, it's an information resource on the political assassinations of the 1960s, primarily, not only John Kennedy, but Robert Kennedy, Martin Luther King. And, um, excuse me, uh, the main claim to fame of the website is a large million and a half page searchable document archive of declassified documents uh, on these political murders. Um, but there's essays and audio and photos and all kinds of other materials as well, and that's been my main contribution to this giant citizen inquiry that's been proceeding for decades
1: now. Well, first off, congratulations on your promotion to president. That's fantastic. <laughs> that's great. Uh, now, um, I'm also I didn't cooking, realize
0: Bible washer, but go
1: ahead. <laughs> <laughs> that's why they pay you the big bucks. Now, <laughs> um, if I didn't realize there was a. a They were devoted to other political assassinations. Yes, I mean,
0: the John Kennedy assassination is the primary thing, but we actually also have online, for instance, all the investigative files into Robert Kennedy's murder um, and a variety of other materials. There's even things on the Iran-Contra investigations and Watergate. Uh, So it's a large historical uh, resource, but the primary focus is John Kennedy's assassination.
1: Wow, this sounds like a really awesome primary source like treasure trove of stuff. How many people do you deal with coming to the site looking for information? It varies,
0: but there's every day there's probably a couple thousand unique visitors that goes up and down seasonally. Um, But there's a devoted following. Um, We even have a membership program, but basically I was determined when we put this up that there wouldn't be sort of a pay for access. So every single page, every single resource on the Foundation website is uh, available for free to anyone around the world to visit. And then there's memberships, which have a, a few certain extra benefits as well.
1: Hear that, Shadow Citizens? Mary MaryFerrall.org. M A R Y F E R R E L L.org. That's where all these documents live, and it's free. They want you to look at them, they want you to figure stuff out. Wow. Okay. We, so when we did, when did this you conversation
0: get a little bit of a by the news of today? By the of but we, we can
1: I know, off. I know, but I a little know, but, but I little to know a little bit of a little bit
0: of a I fell down the rabbit i of a were, in of a am kind of a latecomer, i bit of a little bit of a little i of a little bit of I had never even seen the Oliver Stone movie when it came out in theaters, and just little bit of a it was of a little bit of a little and it seemed kind of interesting. I was actually reading a computer programming book at the time while well, I watched the movie. That's my uh, profession. And, but I got interested enough that next time I was in a Borders bookstore, I went and found a book on it and then another, and sort of the rest is history for me. And what happened is at that time, there were actually some pretty large-scale conferences going on in Dallas at the anniversary of the assassination with h- several hundred people and speakers and everything. They, they still exist in a somewhat smaller form. Um, and so I went that year, and this was at a time in the late 1990s when the, the, a huge amount of government documents were being declassified um, as a result of the so-called JFK Records Act. And everybody's passing around these paper copies of documents, oohing and eyeing over the amazing stuff that's in them, and it truly was. Some of it was truly eye-popping, and we can get into some stories. And and I kept saying, have you guys never heard of the Internet or scanners or anything? And they apparently hadn't. Um, it's a somewhat older crowd, partly. And so uh, basically I became the self-appointed electronic archivist of the whole affair and uh, started a, a website called History Matters and got, a, and a, got to know a man, a man named Jim Lazar, who runs the Assassination Archives and Research Center in D.C., where he had a lot of paper copies of records because of Freedom of Information Act requests. He, he's a lawyer. And mm-hmm. so I ended up taking a lot of his documents. and We made CD-ROMs at first and then started putting them online and uh, kept barreling along doing it. And it's become wow. a hobby that got really out of control.
1: <laughs> now, here's just one more personal question. Do you get paid for this?
0: I do not. Wow. Um, uh, there was a time when we had a few of us building that website where we um, got a little bit of funding to, to do it, uh, but those days are long gone. It's back to being a hobby.
1: Right. Now, what drives you to keep doing this, though? There's got to be something in your heart that's telling you, I've got to do this. If you keep doing it, what's going on with yeah, you? Yeah,
0: I, 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 like many people, got bitten really bad in the early days, and for me, the primary thing was not so much the, the mystery, the it, but it became obvious when those documents came out that the government investigations were complete failures and in many cases, um, you know, failed to go after the truth in outrageous ways. And I I don't know, I'm a proud American and became indignant over that. And that's mm-hmm. what motivated me at first. And I think it's, to a certain extent, what continues to motivate me is that um, the... The public deserves better from the federal government than to sort of, you know, slap a big report on the easy solution to the crime and not take on the real issues.
1: Mm. Do you see, and I'm just going to say this, and I, I think I can guess your answer. Do you see what they did during the JFK assassination up until now, even maybe it's still going? I don't know. Have you seen this happen in other events? here in America, or elsewhere? Um,
0: Well, it it sort of depends on what you mean. I mean, we we had in the 60s, of course, a whole series of assassinations, and in every single case, they basically pinned on sort of a kind of half-crazy, you know, lone person. And every single one of those cases, if you get into the details of them, that story starts to fall apart, and it makes you wonder what's going on, and are they connected? Mm -hmm. Um, And then I think it's also true in general that You know, we you can learn a lot by studying those investigative files about how a government works or doesn't work in crisis. I'm not one of the people that believes that everyone in the government was in on it or that sort of thing. And so the story of why the government failed to come to grips with with uh, the assassinations um, is, you know, an interesting story in of itself. And it's something that I think is a problem and does recur, where it's very hard for government agencies to avoid politics when they uh, look at things that serious.
1: Well, take us through that. Let's start uh, with what just happened today. How everybody's? What just happened to you today? So, so Are you today? looking at millions of documents? What's going on? Uh,
0: no, I'm looking at nothing. And so that's the story for today is that the expectation was that on today, the last of the documents that had been identified in the 1990s as assassination-related but had been withheld from the public because of sensitivity about sources and methods or intelligence actions and so forth. And there was a fair number of documents, both withheld in full, just kept in the archives, and others that were released but with blackouts, in some cases small, like a person's name, in some cases whole pages. And the law that they were released under in 1992, stipulated after 25 years, all those documents would be released to the public in full period, unless the President of the United States signed an order indicating otherwise. And so, and that 25 year date is to, literally today. Mm-hmm. And what happened today was the, uh, there was a lot of this week behind the scenes scrambling. My understanding is the CIA and FBI in particular, but not necessarily just them, were uh, lobbying the White House to get things. Uh, um, to retain some and uh, I just have seen a press release from the White House that came out literally minutes ago in which Donald Trump has authorized that there's going to be a six-month period to review these and I think some will come out tonight but a, a small subset and the rest are going to go through a six-month review period. Now, they've had 25 years to do this review.
1: <laughs> I'm sorry to giggle but how many, how many times has this happened? Uh, one, two, three. Is it, I'm counting four times that they've said they do it but you it's probably a, know this more, it's, right?
0: It's, a, it's outrageous. I mean, you okay. know, they, literally, they could have all sat down a year ago and figured this out. And
1: uh, or and maybe fifty years ago. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: okay. All right. So right now, as of tonight, some so will I think we're
0: expecting tonight that a subset. We're not sure how much of the documents that were withheld will in fact be released on the National Archives website in electronic form. And that the remainder are going to go through the six-month review, and then we'll see what happens—whether they get withheld forever or not. Unknown huh. to be to be determined. Yeah. This is, uh, now, how does this feel? Contacting their representatives—they should feel free.
1: All right. Yeah. I guess that's the only way you can do it—is to contact your representative because it's a congressional order, right? Is yeah, it a congressional in fact,
0: order? I think. I think some Congress people had wind of this coming because Walter Jones of North Carolina. And Chuck Grassley of Iowa, at least those two, were making statements in the last week that they were strongly in in favor of everything coming out. And so I think they must have had an inkling that this lobbying was going on at the White House and were Mm -hmm. objecting to it. So I think there may be allies in Congress for people that are trying to um, overturn what seems to have just happened.
1: Now... I'm not hugely invested in this JFK thing, although I find it fascinating. But after watching the film The Searchers, which you appear in and you do a great job in it, um, how does it feel to be somebody like that, one of the searchers, to keep getting yanked around like this? I mean, can you express how that feels? I mean, I I know I had like a. Boyfriend that I broke up with once, and I kept getting yanked around. We'd get back together, and like, here's a little <laughs> bit more. And, and you know, as you kind of get tossed around for a while, you're like, all right, enough, enough. Yeah, but then yeah. you always come crawling back. How does it feel to be yanked around yeah. by your government like that?
0: Um, yeah, uh, not great. You know, I, i everyone's different, and I tend to have more philosophical attitudes about these things and be amused rather than outraged some of the time. But it really is unconscionable what's happened. And, uh, I don't know what to say,
1: you know. Yeah. It, well, well, I have another question. You know, when you always see these blacked-out pages, and you said they had 25 years. Does it literally mean they're going to take off the black ink, or they're going to give you the original? Like, how does? What are you supposed well, to see?
0: Um they so they're, the black ink cop, the black ink versions are copies of originals without the black ink on them. Uh, which oh, okay. the National Archives is in possession of. These things are actually, you know. They're sitting in the archives, and in fact, the press release. In the press release, um, President Trump, you know, boasts that therefore I'm ordering today that the veil finally be lifted on these. In the same press release, where he's actually doing the opposite, and um, and then goes on to um, you know explain about this six-month period. Um,
1: <laughs> That's okay. He'll make the same announcement in six months. Don't worry about. It. We'll have another tweet in six months. Yeah.
0: All right, um, but so who knows? I mean, we you know again, the, the dust hasn't settled on this. Uh, it, it does defy expectations. A lot of people myself included thought that for the most part, you know, if not entirely, these things would come out, but um, you know, apparently not.
1: Hmm. Now, do you in your mind is and this is just my theory is that they didn't release these little chunks of documents because maybe they contained, Financial stuff, or maybe they but, contained active assets like real CIA or spy well, names. Well, well
0: or no, I mean, I think, you know, to be fair to the agencies, I think the, we know a fair amount about at least the general nature of these documents because every single document that's at issue here actually has been reviewed by this review board in the 90s and they attached a special sheet of so called metadata with it, you know, a title, a date a list of subjects, that sort of thing. And so we actually know something about the documents. And I think indeed, in fact, the blackouts and some of the withheld in full, they do get into this issue of sources and methods. So for instance, one of those stories that's of great interest to people that, that follow the Kennedy assassination is this alleged trip to Lee, of Lee Harvey Oswald to Mexico City seven weeks before the assassination. And there are millions of rumors that came out of there about communist agents being involved with him and all this kind of stuff. And that, that's a fascinating story in itself and very illuminating but the docu- there are more documents to come out on that story and what they would do is reveal things like possibly even the names of double agents that the CIA had in the Cuban Embassy they would reveal um, collaboration between the CIA and the Mexican government to do surveillance which they would regard as embarrassing to the Mexican government although the other night Stephen Colbert you know, said embarrassing you know U.S.-Mexico relations. I think that ship has sailed. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but but, well, but it is that sort of thing, and so it's not in some sense it's not surprising that the agencies, you know, are fighting this. It just it seems pretty last minute for one thing, and and most historians and other people that are you know are of the opinion that this is all fifty something years later, everyone is dead. You know, let's just
1: do it. Yeah. Now, do you think? Th- you must have heard the reports about the Cuban embassy and some sort of yeah. sound weapon or something. Do you think that's connected to this? Uh, or do you think that's... I'm
0: not sure about, about that. There, oh. the, the story about the Cuban embassy, well, there's many. but um, So do you want to get into one of these stories a little bit? Yeah, sure. It why not? Okay? We got all of So nice. – so, so, <laughs> um, According to the Warren Commission, Oswald took a trip to Mexico City seven weeks before the assassination, went to Mm -hmm. Cuban and Soviet embassies to try to get a visa because he was going to, I don't know, go see Castro or defect again, go back to the Soviet Union. No one's quite sure. He was denied those visas and came home and shot the president. That was their story. What we didn't know at the time is that there was a substory to that that was roiling within the government. And in fact... Um, when Lyndon John- in the 1990s, phone calls that Lyndon Johnson made, he recorded them, and those like the Nixon tapes sort of, and they came out. And what we discovered is when Lyndon Johnson put together the Warren Commission, he was openly infecting the specter of World War III to people that he was yanking out of the commission, including Earl Warren. Well, what's that all about, World War III? And it turns out that there were... There were allegations that Oswald had met with Cuban and Soviet agents, that he had been paid money and hired by them to kill Kennedy and all this stuff. So that was like super scary. And this story um, helped drive the formation of the Warren Commission. The funny part is that it seems like, and this is one of the greatest clues to the actual solution to the crime, is that that evidence was phonied up. There's a fair amount of evidence that there was an imposter doing this. Oswald, in fact, was probably there, but he was impersonated at the same time, particularly in telephone calls um, to a Soviet agent who was alleged to be an assassinations expert. And so it's a very tangled story, and this is one of the issues, is that it's been covered up, and some of these documents may shed additional light on it, although I doubt it will really clear the whole thing up. But if, indeed, um, there was someone down in... In Mexico City, impersonating Oswald and doing it in a way to make it look like he's a hired assassin, then that's an amazing twist on this communist conspiracy angle, and which you see popping up every time people get back into this subject. It's like, ooh, it looks like maybe Castro did it. And the reality Mm -hmm. appears to be that that was phonied up. And so, um, that, in one sense, leads you to the kind of people who might have been able to pull off such a feat, um, and it also is part, a real part of the story of why the government decided to just pin it on Oswald. Because the choice between for the Warren Commission was not Oswald the loner versus oh Oswald the uh, you know CIA assassin or Oswald the organized crime assassination. Their choice was it was Oswald the lone assassin. Or we're going to believe this stuff coming out of Mexico City, and he's a hired communist killer in his World War III. And so my belief is that Earl Warren, in fact, conducted a cover-up for the good of the country as he saw it. Oh, my
1: gosh. Okay, so we've got the Warren Commission, that report, that's the one. It's all based on, now you're saying this phonied up stuff, but that's all based on this
0: Well, well the Warren Warren Commission tread lightly. They didn't even hardly write anything about this episode.
1: No, they were more Um, based, as far as I can see, on this magic bullet bouncing around.
0: Yeah, so yeah, the the so-called single bullet theory, I mean, that, of all the things that if somebody learns a bit about this case that will convince you that it couldn't have been Oswald alone, it's studying the issue of the so-called single bullet theory. And the the short version of that is that the Zabruder film is kind of like a clock of the assassination. You can see people being wounded on it, you know, both Kennedy and Governor Connolly, who was in the same motor car and the motorcade. And so it gives you kind of a clock. And so one of the issues is that Kennedy is clearly reacting to a bullet hit when Connolly mm-hmm. is clearly not hit yet. And yet Con- Connolly is then hit very shortly thereafter, too short to be fired by two different shots from the same gun. Right. And so what the Warren Commission came up with is their there solution to that. Well, it had to be the same bullet and Connolly had a delayed reaction. And the delayed reaction itself is kind of humorous because the bullet that hit Connolly broke a rib and broke his wrist. And so uh, having a second long delayed reaction is actually kind of humorous. But um, apart from (laughs) that... Did it hit its humorous (laughs) bone? (laughs) There you go. Um, But it's it's worse than that. And the bullet itself even, the, the bullet that is alleged to have done this, was found on a stretcher in Parkland Hospital an hour after the men were delivered there. It wasn't like dug out of the limousine or somebody's body. It was oh, found in a stretcher sure. with apparently no blood or anything on it and not damaged, even though it's allegedly said to have broken her wrist or whatever. I mean, if you turned it on its head and the conspiracy <laughs> people were saying this is what happened, the the rational people would say, Oh, you're out of your mind. That's just impossible. The bullet couldn't do that and the bullet is obviously planted because it was just found on a stretcher and yada yada yada. Um, and so we don't. I don't want to get too deep into the Plaza Plaza, whatever, because you know.
1: No, uh, no, no. Go right ahead. If you must, you must. Go ahead. Go ahead.
0: But, Say but whatever so, you want. But but so, but so so the the single bullet theory doesn't stand up. And the problem is the Warren Commission well knew, and it's clear to everyone who studies this case that if the if Kennedy and Connolly were not hit by that same bullet, then there was more than two people shooting. or More right. than one person shooting. I'm sorry. Period. And so all of a sudden the whole notion of this guy who didn't know anybody and nobody knew him up in the window, whatever, it falls apart and then where are you?
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, where are we? Because, <laughs> this was one of the questions I asked. How many agencies, because you always, it almost gives you the vibe that the CIA and the FBI were both, in the Secret Service were they all ha- seem to have some sort of angle on this.
0: Yeah. Y- you know where you have to be careful, I think, is that when people start studying this, they start saying, oh, geez, look at J. Edgar Hoover is covering up the crime. And they find out Lyndon Johnson, you know, was being investigated right before the assassination and organized crime. You know, Robert Kennedy was going after them. And so one of the problems is, like, if, you, if, if there's like a normal murder in your town, what do the cops do for the first thing? Well, if they don't have, like, clear evidence, they say, okay, who had a motive here? You know, is it the husband? Is it whatever? And that's quite reasonable. But if you talk about the president of the United States, you've got 250 million people with a motive, practically. You know, they, Kennedy, this was the height of the Cold War. He was, the, the military was at odds with him uh, in, in many ways. Uh, he and the CIA were having problems. His brother was investigating organized crime. Lyndon Johnson was about to be thrown off the ticket during the next election. J. Edgar Hoover uh, was, you know, Kennedy was trying to retire him out. And you just go at Cuban exiles were mad at him for not, you know, overthrowing Castro. And you go just down the list, and it's just ridiculous. So if you start with motive, you get nowhere.
1: Right. So I just don't well, it looks it's like they tried to get rid of the whole Kennedy. Clan there. Yeah. I mean, even his kid.
0: Yeah, even you know John
1: Junior. Yep, he died.
0: Yeah, I, I, you know, it. I think it, you know, it's many years ago now, but it's a poignant period in history because I think what happened is during the 1960s, which is a pretty turbulent time for people that are old enough to remember it, or even to have lived in the aftermath. And this was a time when the best and brightest political leaders of that generation were gunned down one after another. And I think it had a profound effect on the direction of the country. Mm-hmm. I'll give you okay. one example of that, um, too. The Vietnam War. There's this Ken Burns documentary that, you know, is on PBS these days. And um, I think in general it's quite well done. He has, you know, people from the Vietnamese side on it. It's pretty balanced and has a lot of good information in it. But one thing caught my eye, and that's that there's an hour-and-a-half segment on President Kennedy And on one hand, it's fairly balanced. He does bring up that in November of 1961, the military was advising a much-increased presence of combat troops in Vietnam, and Kennedy resisted that and instead sort of started beefing up the so-called advisors. And it goes through a bunch of stuff like that. Here's what we know now because of these documents, in fact, because the documents that got released under the JFK Records Act were not only assassination-related, but they cast a wider net and included a lot of Kennedy foreign policy documents because of the idea that a lot of people believed that Vietnam and or Cuba and or the Cold War had something to do with this murder. And so in 1998, um, a document came out that had been a state secret for 35 years and it's online on the website. And what this is, is a report from a spring conference in Honolulu of the Joint Chiefs of Staff who had just been ordered by Kennedy and his Secretary of State, Secretary of Defense McNamara, to draw plans for complete withdrawal of U.S. forces from Vietnam. And they put that in this briefing book. There's a timetable in it, printed in black and white in the table, and anybody can look at it for themselves. In October of 1963, there was an order initiated on paper, uh, NSAM 263, for people that have heard of it, um, to begin a 1,000-person pullout. And uh-huh. then another document that was secret for a long time, even longer than the first one, was on November 20th, there was yet another Secretary of Defense conference, this is two days before Kennedy's murder, in which the timetable was reaffirmed, and in fact it was sped up slightly, um, because in the first document, Kennedy and McNamara had ordered that the timetable wasn't sufficient and it should be sped up. And so it's you people can argue to their blue in the face about what Kennedy might have done if he'd lived, but it's simply a fact that on the day he was killed, a Vietnam withdrawal plan was on the books and uh, government policy.
1: Oh, my God. That literally and, just made me want to cry. And, I didn't and, know that.
0: And so then put this in your pipe and smoke it. Ken Burns is okay. a smart guy okay. and pretty even-handed. I like his stuff. In an hour and a half about Kennedy Vietnam, not one word of what I just said appears in that documentary. And it's oh. just a fact. You well, can look, histor- histor- regular historians all know this. This is not a conspiracy thing. You can see it for yourself. The documents are all in public.
1: So why do you think he left that out?
0: I don't know. Uh, it's worth asking him, and I don't know him. I, if I were to guess, and it's just a complete speculation, You know, if you're doing a 15-hour documentary or whatever, do you want to get dragged into the muck of you know controversial stuff like that? Maybe it's better just to not bring it up. I don't know. Had a, no, because had you know a, how a, many
1: people would be flipped out. Like I don't know if my mother <laughs> knew about that, but I know if she heard that, she would be really angry yeah. and she'd be upset. Yeah. And I'm positive people of that generation would be really upset. Mm-hmm. They lost a lot of friends and relatives in Vietnam. Yep.
0: But that's what I mean. So, but it, but it's a hot button topic because, um and I think you know, again, I'm just guessing, but it is hot button because of a couple things. One is that. You know, it calls into question, although his whole film calls into question, like the whole point of being in Vietnam and, you know, did people die in vain and all that, which is a very touchy subject, and rightly so. And then um, it also then immediately raises in your mind the question, okay, was Kennedy killed over this then? And that's a question that mainstream people in America still don't want to ask. Mm
1: Mm-hmm. All right, so we got the Vietnam thing, we've got the Cuba thing,
0: mm-hmm.
1: we've got the, what else going on? The communist. Oh, you've
0: left off organized mm-hmm. crime and the military. Yeah, well, yeah,
1: yeah. On, yeah, the whole thing. <laughs> and, there's so many different I things know. going on. That, I mean, did, that's,
0: that's the problem again. It's a very confusing, you know. I, I, can't, I can't tell you in this show who killed Kennedy, you know. there's no. Like, no. There's, and we know a lot more about what, for lack of a better word, you can call the cover-up, although I think it's a more complex process than the image that invokes in people's minds of smoke-filled rooms or whatever, but, you know, whatever you want to call it. Um, but we know a lot less about the crime, and I think that's partly because it was never honestly investigated, and the people that had subpoena power to do the real work of trying to figure it out didn't do that job. They were more than willing to just go along and and do the Oswald thing, although... If you, Viewer, uh, listeners might be interested in something. You know, everyone hears about the official government stories that Oswald did, it. the official government story. Well, it's not actually even true. That was the Warren Commission's conclusion. In the 1970s, Congress launched a major reinvestigation, which went on for two years. And they wrote a report and 13 appendices to go with it. And, um, and the conclusion of the House of Representatives Uh, investigation was that Kennedy was probably killed as a result of a conspiracy, but they couldn't identify who did it.
1: Right. Right. That's in the film, The Searchers, that little clip Mm -hmm. where that testimony.
0: And and that's Um, been lost to history, even though it's a a more recent official government report on the Kennedy killing.
1: So. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. (laughs) So when people say it's a conspiracy, they're not conspiracy theorists. They're stating a fact. However, Somebody rolled in along the way to make people that said it's a conspiracy seem like they're wackadoodles.
0: Well, it's interesting you bring that up. One of the documents that came out in the 1990s is from 1967. And what it is, is a memo from the CIA to all their station chiefs um, around the world because the government was very concerned at that point about growing disbelief in the Warren Commission. And so it instructed the station chiefs for how to counter um, this growing criticism in each person's country, and in particular, try to convince other foreign governments that, oh yeah, no, no, we figured it out, no, don't believe this other stuff. And in that document, and I don't know if this is the first time it was ever used, but they explicitly said that you should use the term conspiracy theorist in talking about these people as one of the techniques for countering them. So that may be the origin of that term. In fact, was a, a directive to CIA stations around the world.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's interesting because I think it was last night or the night before. I think one of the comedy shows. I think it was Fallon. One of the I think it was Fallon. He was talking about his. He started his monologue with, "Well, President Trump just announced that he'd be releasing the Kennedy documents," and everybody laughs. He's like because. That already was settled last September, and he's making fun of it, and everybody's laughing, and huh? and I'm like, you know what? This is kind of strange because either they don't know, there's at least 17 intelligence agencies that are petitioning Trump to not yeah, release yeah, these documents, yeah, yeah. or they're part of the scheme to make people feel like that it's uh, they're they're making fun of the cons- quote unquote yeah, conspiracy yeah. theorists.
0: Yeah, I don't know what to say. I mean, I run into this myself obviously, although I, you know, I don't rise high enough on the food chain where it matters, you know, in in the right. world of like mainstream media or whatever, but it's really uh it's a shame. Uh there's uh I've gotten to know a lot of people that are conspiracy theorists, uh for lack of a better word, people or people that study this. And yeah, like like any group, there's, you know, weird people and crazy people, um but some of the brightest um, most amazing people I've met in my life has been through doing this. Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, you know, I would I imagine. A
0: lot of the authors and people that have done research for a long time, guys like Peter Dale Scott or John Newman, who have written amazing books, um, or some just hard-nosed, smart people, Larry Hancock, Jeff Morley, some of these other guys that are more current uh, writing. and um, Some of them is an amazing cast of uh, characters. I know a guy named Jim Lazar who... As, you know, I've been doing this since 1998. He literally has devoted his life to suing the government to get documents released. He was instrumental in um, early versions of getting the Freedom of Information Act passed. He was uh, an advisor in getting the writing of the JFK Records Act downright, and he's filed FOIA lawsuit, Freedom of Information Act, FOIA, FOIA lawsuit after FOIA lawsuit uh, over the years, and it's just is an amazingly dogged person. And hey, he's got a twinkle in his eyes like Santa Claus at the same time.
1: <laughs> now, he's still alive. He's still he alive, right?
0: He's in D.C., and he's still doing it.
1: God bless him. Good. I don't have a
0: thing or two to say about this latest thing today. Um, yeah. I believe Oliver Stone may make a statement about this, by the way.
1: Um, really? Yeah. Have you ever met Oliver Stone? I've not, actually. No, I don't, oh, I don't know yeah. everybody. What, what did you think of his film, JFK?
0: I, I liked
1: it. I, you know,
0: it's, it's not a documentary per se. He take, you know, he he sort of starts with the garrison investigation, this 1960s investigation by the Orleans district attorney, which itself is another one of these sort of, you know, very controversial black holes. Um, Mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, and, and, but he, you know, he mixes characters together. He's making a movie and it's not strictly speaking a documentary and he got hammered for that. um, but I think big picture, it's a great movie. And big picture, I think the story it tells um, is, well, I, I don't know enough. You know, nobody knows enough to know what's true and what's not in every single instance. But mm-hmm. I think it's a great movie for to uh, get the gist of what's going on.
1: Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. I agree. Now, if if somebody's listening to this show, Shadow Citizens are listening to the show, and they become interested in this whole JFK kind of cover-up thing. Like you, you had just mentioned, call your congressman. Is that is that really all they can do, or can what else can they do?
0: Um, that's a good question. I expect over the next couple of days that there will be petition drives. I okay. have to decide, you know, whether Mary Farrell Foundation might even do one, or probably just hook on with somebody else, because I'm sure it's, there's going to be a groundswell of this. Maybe even, you know, at change.org, there's places where petitions get done that people can sign and mass. I mean, it's a, it's a small thing in one sense, but, you know, if those things get a lot of people's names on them, you know, it can make a difference. So I would certainly encourage people to monitor, you know, uh, whatever they can. Um, JFKfacts.org is a great blog run by a friend of mine that tries to keep current and sort of the news of what's going on and so you could sort of find out about petitions probably through there for instance
1: um, mm-hmm. or through the
0: Mary Frell Foundation and so that's at least that's one 1 avenue is i think i think it is a good time to basically make your voice be heard because of what's happened here so if people are interested i think that's one thing people can do um beyond that i don't know you know it's uh i think it's you know for this particular topic it's 55 years later and you know i don't have illusions of you know, a new investigation. I mean, you know, the people you'd want to interview are mostly dead anyway, or whatever. We're past that point. Yeah. So, um, I, I think if, if people are interested, there's a lot you can learn that maybe you can apply to the future, like, you know, um, how to read these documents, you know, so that you become informed about how government works in general and for the next time things happen, be prepared,
1: um, I yeah for instance for for instance what as an archivist as president of this uh, foundation what would you say about people who are very upset about a current issue say the shooting in Las Vegas mm-hmm. people are getting you know kind of tingly about that they they're realizing that the quote unquote official story isn't exactly and now we live in the age of the Internet, and everybody feels free to, like, you know, spout off their opinions about everything. Yeah. What, uh, well, I, I how don't know. would it's you a... handle this? I mean, the people, like, we have your website, but we also have the vast Internet, which has everything that includes fake disinformation <laughs> to every. How would you tell people to proceed when these things happen, like Sandy Hook, like nine yeah, eleven, like, it, you know. It, it's, it's
0: tough because I am, you know, I'm. Feel like I'm a careful person. I do not buy on to every theory that comes along about anything. I, I like to sort of dive in details and read and make my own conclusions. And I think we live in an era where you do have to be very careful. There's a lot of stuff around and it can't all be true. There's a lot of junk as well. And it's tough. You know, it's, it's not easy to separate fact from fiction and be, but I think um, this is something that you know touches regular politics as well as the events we're talking about. I think people, if we're going to survive as a healthy, thriving democracy, people have to up their game about understanding what's going on, about parsing fact from fiction, and making smart decisions. And I don't know of a magic answer for that, other than people generally having the mindset and the will to make it happen. Um and yeah. and, find, and finding sources that you trust, you know, it's. I, I think. Well, you know, here's the other thing. When, when do I we, just people, tr- I get, we I trust? A, yeah, go ahead.
1: Do we tr- do we trust the government documents? Do, I mean, it looks like that's what you're dealing with. You're trying. It's,
0: well, it's a, no, it's a very good point, and in fact, you know, there are. Uh, it's always possible, right, for a given piece of paper to be a forgery, right? So, so nothing nothing is like nailed in stone. I'm not saying that. Oh. You only go to government documents to find out what's happening, you know, and they can also just, you know, in fact, there were several witnesses to the Warren Commission who said later when they read their testimony printed in those big fat 26 volumes that the commission printed, they said, that's not what I said. Mm. And so, and it's not easy to understand. And, And, you know, in some cases, maybe it really is what they said and they've changed their mind. In other cases, I'm pretty sure that's not true. So I don't think there's a magic answer. here. You can't know everything perfectly, and all you can do as a person is have your wits about you. <laughs> you mm-hmm. know, I, don't, I don't know. Um, it's not or,
1: easy. Or, or people could just say, "Screw it! It's it's ancient okay. history now, and I'm yeah. moving on."
0: I I think for the Kennedy assassination, that's that's fine. You know, I I think there's things to be to be learned from it for the future. But I, you know, it is it's. Going on 55 years now, I'm not telling people out there that, oh, this is the thing you must do. You know, I got into it, but um, I, you know, it's a big world. And I think it only matters at this point if there's things that can be brought to the present day and be current. Otherwise, yeah, it's great for historians or whatever. But, um,
1: well, do you yeah. think if we found out, I don't know, if we got that chunk of documents that are holding up for six more months, if there was something in there? Do you think it would affect uh, – how monumentous do you think this is, It is it's what I'm trying to, to get know. At. It's
0: hard to know till we see them. I, I think it's really what's been happening is for 55 years we've been peeling the onion on this story. And every time there is either books written by smart people that sort of advance other people's understanding or documents come out that, you know, reveal that this – you know, commission interviewed this person we never knew about, and here's what they said. And many different ways this information comes out, and it's not all government files. It also includes people that went to Dallas and were dogged and found the housewife who was in in a house where the Tippit shooting happened, where Oswald supposedly killed a cop in the afternoon, and and uh, and the housewife says, no, there was two guys out there with guns, you know, and and so. A lot of it is also private investigation in this particular case. So there's a lot of sources of this. And um, it's we, we, both with the documents and with other ways of finding out what happened there, it's been the, like these layers of the onion trying to get to the core of the truth. I don't know whether i ever get there, frankly. But that's the process here. So these documents that we're talking about here that are being withheld another six months, or at least most of them it looks like, um, and maybe longer, and uh, there's no star chamber report in there where, you know, the special black prince and the, you know, and the government like has written down exactly what happened and finally you get to see it. That's not how it works. At mm-hmm. best, what will happen is we will learn more about stories that the people that study this already know something about, but they will fill in things and raise new questions. And the problem is the further we get away from the event, the harder it is to advance that because you may find out that, holy cow, uh, look at this guy. Oops, he's dead. And that happens all the time here. I'll give you an example of this. Um, there's a guy named George Berkeley. He's now dead. He was Admiral George Berkeley. He was the JFK's personal physician. Okay, Literally mm-hmm. his personal physician. He rode in the motorcade in Dallas. He was present at, the, at Parkland Hospital where Kennedy was rushed to to see if they could save his life. He then traveled to on Air Force One with everybody else to D.C. and attended the controversial military autopsy of Kennedy. And so uh, he he was he was everywhere in the story. Um, the Warren Commission, it's well known, was faced with a problem that all the doctors in Dallas, and literally all of them, were describing wounds which were consistent with Kennedy being shot from the front, in, in other words, the direction of the grassy knoll. And whereas the autopsy was written up to say no no they were he was hit twice both shots from the rear which would be where the so-called sniper's nest in the book depository was and this was a this was a problem that they knew they had the only person who was medically trained person who was at both places and could help unravel that mystery that they were faced with was Admiral George Berkeley the president's personal physician and the Warren Commission never interviewed him
1: what the okay <laughs>
0: <laughs> the story, okay, so the story goes on that's that's the beginning of the story so the next step mm-hmm. is, okay, so now now a couple of years later, it turns out Berkeley's still in the story He, Robert Kennedy gets hold of the, the brain of JFK and tissue slides and what may be the actual real autopsy report, there's a whole story about there being two of them, and hands them over to George Berkeley, George Berkeley goes and fetches them for him, and he, he stays in the story for years, fast forward to 1975, or six when the congressional investigation is starting up now, and Berkeley's a private citizen, he's retired, um, and the initial investigators hired to run the House investigation were a couple of guys, um, Richard Sprague and Bob Tannenbaum, who had been famous prosecutors in New York prosecuting mob, you know, big mobster figures, whatever, and they were, they were like gung ho people. And they ruffled a lot of feathers in Washington. They were they were telling the CIA they were going to put lie detector tests on people and stuff like this. And they were, well, people were unhappy with them. At the same time, George Berkeley had his lawyer call up the head of the, the new investigation. And there's a memo in the – the reason we know about this is one of the released documents is a memo in the file where the – investigator, the lead investigator who took the call, wrote a memo to himself about the call he got from Berkeley's lawyer. And in the call, Berkeley's lawyer said, my client, George Berkeley, is an unassuming person, but he would like to talk to you because he has evidence that others besides Oswald must have participated. Mm-hmm. This is the president's personal position in the motorcade, whatever. About eight days later, the uh, that team of lead investigators was forced into resignation and a new team put in place to run the house committee thing and we were off to the races
1: yeah naturally okay wow
0: <laughs> so th- there are a wow. lot of stories like that and this, this this is these are the stories of what you might call cover-up this is what happened uh, in those investigations um
1: yeah this is this is like x Files stuff this is wow this is <laughs> yeah
0: but, but, th- but that's what I mean this kind of stuff so you know you can get into the who done it and say oh the CIA killed him or the military killed him whatever and you know you don't have any proof and it's all crazy talk the things I'm relaying here are just simple fact. Anyone can look them up.
1: Right. So the, just the fact that we've got all these cover-ups going on, it looks like, and I think you mentioned this the other night, it's not from the top down. You imagine it, not a top-down type of situation, but kind of horizontal through an agency or maybe more than one agency. Or maybe I, there's I, a different organization that links the people within the different um, you know, I
0: don't know. Yeah, no, it's a good question. I mean, I think on the, on the level of the cover-up, it's, you know, there, there are people, there are FBI agents that are just doing their job and they're doing fine, you know, and there's, it's, it's a whole, you know, there's a lot of people involved in those kind of investigations, but I, uh, it seems like they were subverted at key points along the way, that there are people mm-hmm. placed that knew, like, the right answer, and in some cases, I think it's even just normal politics. Uh, Arlen Spector, you know, who was a former senator from Pennsylvania, um, he was one of the bright staff lawyers on the Warren Commission. And he was, in fact, in charge of the medical evidence. And he was the one that had this grapple with this problem of the Dallas doctors saying Kennedy was shot from the front and the autopsy thing was shot from the rear. And he invented the most convoluted questions to ask the Dallas doctors to try to get them on record saying, well, maybe Kennedy was shot from behind. I mean, literally, their, their sentence is where he goes on for a paragraph and a half saying, well, if you posit these 33 facts, what would your conclusion be that? And then they're like, I guess if you posit those facts, he was shot from behind, you know? And, <laughs> and he says, okay, great, let's move on, you know? Yeah. Um, but I think, you know, in case, he's an ambitious guy. He can smell the coffee. He knows which way the wind is blowing on the Warren Commission. He doesn't have to be like some super-duper cover-up artist. He's just like, he knows what the right answer is. You know, and so there's a fair amount of that, I think, that happened in these cases as well.
1: Mm-hmm. You
0: know, mm-hmm. when you get to people like Earl Warren and whatever, that's, you know, that was a masterstroke in Johnson's part. Earl Warren was revered by liberals in the country at the time. You know, he was um, involved. This had to do with, you know, fights about desegregation and all kinds of things and he was like the liberal lion. And if it had been the Allen Dulles Commission, you know, half the country and all the world wouldn't have believed the answer. But having Earl Warren on there was like the stamp of like and so and so I think a reasonable question has always been why would Earl Warren lie? And that's why the story I alluded to earlier about the Mexico City stuff and this these allegations Roiling in the government of communist conspiracy that needed to be tamped down is basically where that answer lies um, mm-hmm. that World War three was not crazy i mean the the country just a year earlier had the Cuban Missile Crisis where it really was you know on the verge of World War three and so it was not an abstract thing at the time
1: no now here's my personal question. How involved was Alan Dulles at this time with so, so
0: yeah. he had been you know he had um had been FBI, I'm sorry, CIA director for a long time, and uh, when the Bay of Pigs happened, where the plans that had been drawn up under Eisenhower and Nixon, um, Kennedy approved them, and they had the big debacle where the invasion of Cuba with CIA-trained Cuban exiles, you know, completely fell apart, mm-hmm. and um, that's a whole story in itself. But anyway, um, uh, when that failed. Um, Kennedy basically forced Dulles into resignation in the aftermath of it. They waited six months to make it look good, but basically forced him out. And so Alan wow. Dulles was in retirement since the fall of 61. And he hmm. was brought back to become a Warren commissioner. <laughs> <laughs> All
1: right. The reason why I'm even giggling is because right now I'm doing a lot of research about the Nazis in Argentina. And mm-hmm. Alan Dulles... He, that man was all over the place. He was all about, I'm not even going to get into him. That's a whole nother ball of wax. No, no, there's there things.
0: I mean, the Operation Paperclip was a thing to bring Nazi scientists in to work in American industries because they were doing mm-hmm. great rocket work and whatever. And, mm-hmm. you know, there were a lot of people in high levels in America that said, let's use them. Let's not, let's not just let them linger or let the Soviets get them or whatever. So there was that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, Dulles was, um, involved in some of that. Another guy that was also um, did some, a little bit of Nazi protection was James Angleton, who was the chief of counterintelligence in the CIA, the people that the, the job of trying to protect the CIA from infiltration by double agents and that sort of thing. And Angleton actually features in the Kennedy assassination story more than Dulles does even. And oh, in fact, gosh. there's a great book that my friend Jeff Morley has just written called The Ghost about Angleton. And it's well worth
1: reading. Great I'm gonna, okay, book. okay, it's called the ghost, the ghost.
0: and it's, it's about Jim Angleton, who was the chief of counterintelligence at CIA during this whole period. Um, he was uh, when when the Warren Commission needed to find out things from the CIA, they officially went to Richard Helms, who was deputy director, but Angleton uh, was uh, basically in charge of what the response would be. Okay, there's a great moment in the files, as it were, where. Uh, Angleton uh, is telling the head of the FBI, J. Edgar Hoover, "Here's the questions the Warren Commission may ask us. Was Oswald ever an agent of your agency? Was this whatever?" And he says, "And our answers will be, blah blah, blah. not like this is what this is what the truth is." He says, "Here's what they may ask.
1: Here's what <laughs> Here, we're here's going to say. Just is. letting yeah. you know."
0: <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs>
1: He's giving you the, the, the cheat sheet. Excellent. Yeah, the, the crib notes. Here you go. Oh, man. Yeah, because I'm interested in this because, I'm, like I said, I'm not going to try to overlay too much of this Nazi stuff, but the Nazis had this whole plan to basically reconfigure a fourth Reich down in Argentina, and there was a lot of American connection. It was basically corporations and I think maybe what Kennedy was doing, he was – it seemed like he was a very pe- trying to be very peaceful. And what I'm getting the vibe of just talking to you and this whole thing about the Nazis and the Fourth Reich yeah, down in Argentina no, I mean, it, is that this – him being around was kind of conflicting with what the Fourth Reich and whatever these corporations who were profiting wildly um, were trying to get – trying to do.
0: Um, I probably shouldn't even tell this story because it's. But gonna, go ahead. You know, I'll go off the we, rails. Yeah, but we might have to
1: go off on a break pretty
0: soon, but <laughs> we'll come back
1: okay. in a second hour and we'll finish up for sure. So okay. go ahead, start.
0: I'll, I'll keep it short. Speaking of Nazis, and this I'm just going to tell a piece of a story that a guy I know named Dan Alcorn, uh, has told lengthy versions of that are just mind blowing.
1: Oh, man. So this, okay, wait. The music's starting up. we got to okay. go to break. You're going to come, we'll come back and you're going to tell us this story. <laughs> Stay tuned, everybody. Okay, this is the second of Shadow Citizen. I'm your host, Rachel L. McIntosh. Tonight we're talking to Rex Bradford. She, he is the, he was the senior archivist, but now he's the president of the Mary Farrell Foundation, which is dedicated to archiving and researching assassination uh, attempts of political leaders. Um, and Rex, are you back on the phone with me? I'm, I'm on the phone. Okay, great. Now, you were going to tell us a really exciting story before I, the break.
0: I'm, so I'm you going go. to. First, first actually, your, your, the audio during the break reminded me of a George Carlin joke. Oh, if, uh, go Firefighters fight fire and uh, – um, oh, God, now I'm forgetting the joke. <laughs> if Firefighters fight fire and crime fighters fight crime. What if freedom fighters fight? They never tell that part, do they?
1: <laughs> anyway,
0: Goodness so, no. so the, the story and I don't want to go too into this because I'm going to forget the good parts anyway but I'll tell the beginning part of a story that's much bigger and it does involve Nazis and so I have a friend who just po- said he, he's a eclectic guy he's not sort of normally one of the Kennedy assassination researchers per se but he's interesting guy and very smart and he said I, so one day I started with the question he said of who owns the book depository building that the shots were supposedly fired from? Just curious. Mm-hmm. So he goes to the Warren Commission report, and there in the appendix, whatever, they ask, they have a, a rumors and speculations section, and they say, and in the rumors and speculations is, some people say that maybe the government killed Kennedy because they owned the building that, you know, the shots were fired from. And the answer is, no, the government is held private. Or the building was held by a private person. Okay, that's helpful. Mm-hmm. So, he, so he goes on and does the research and finds out who the owner of the building is. And it was a guy named Harold Bird who was actually part of the somewhat famous Bird family. You know, there's a, there was a Senator Bird from Virginia. Yeah, so Harold, yeah, yeah. Harold Bird was kind of the black sheep of the family and moved off to Texas and made some money in oil, wildcatting. And, uh, you know, got himself some money and, you know, did other things and ended up, you know, buying this building um, that happened to end up housing this Texas school depository. Um, he also, actually, he and another guy named V.T. Lee co-owned a helicopter company. And mm-hmm. it just happens by coincidence that after Kennedy was killed and the Vietnam War kicked into gear under Johnson, they had previously sold their stock. Uh, short and they, uh, I'm sorry, they had bought back before Kennedy's murder, bought huge amounts of shares of their own failing company, which then boomed in 1964 by selling helicopters to the military. So, anyway, who knows? Could have mm. gotten lucky. Um, mm. But so the next question says, okay, so well, where was this guy during the assassination? And it turns out he, you know, he's a good researcher. He finds out, well, he was in East Africa on safari. Well, okay, what you know? Well, he's, he's African safari with who? It turns out he's there with um, a guy whose name I'm going to mangle. Uh, Elber, uh, I'm not going to be able to spell right. But basically, it's a guy who was head of a Nazi assassination program during. Oh, the-
1: come on, really?
0: <laughs> yep. And uh, my friend's story goes on and on like that from there. And I'm going to try to make him write it down someday. But that's just a piece of it. So. The problem is, so, the Kennedy okay, assassination just, is it makes your head hurt because it's full of stories like this, and they can't all, like, point to the crime, so, all right, you know.
1: but this person researched <laughs> this. Okay, so Harold Bird, who owned the Texas Book Depository, right. he owned a helicopter company that was failing... And that, then that soon he bought to, stock
0: in it, and then it did well and, after the assassination. And he also happened to be vacationing during the assassination with an exactly assassin. with the
1: guy, <laughs> the Nazi assassin. Wow! And that's wow. a piece of the story.
0: Yeah. So you have mm-hmm. there's a lot of you know one of the things that I find fascinating about the Kennedy assassination, and and this is a danger actually for people that draw too many conclusions out of it, is that it's a unique event because there was so much interest in this thing, particularly mm-hmm. you know a couple decades ago that, you know, there are multiple federal investigations, tons of these files, lots and lots and lots of digging by private citizens. You know, the, a lot of the books that are, quote, Kennedy assassination books are really about people that just found out about the whole underworld of organized crime and a connection to democratic politics or, you know, a number of different things. And so it... the Kennedy's murder, in some strange way, opened up a window into the part of America that most people didn't know existed at the time. And, you know, we live in the aftermath of that. Um, And so it's a danger because, you know, you find all these things that seem unseemly and weird and whatever, and maybe that's just really reality. (laughs) Um, uh, But...
1: Wow. Okay, now, Rex. Yeah. Okay. Now, if... People, like I th- you're over at the Mary Farrell Foundation. Right. Who, who was Mary Farrell?
0: So Mary Farrell was a woman who was a legal secretary who lived in Dallas. And she, the day of the assassination, she was literally, she was a regular person. She discovered that the newspaper accounts of the shooting that very day, evening editions, whatever, were like, there were some funny things going on was changing stories. Nothing too dramatic, but she got an interest. And, you know, for whatever reason, like many people, she got into the stuff in a big way. She never wrote a book, but what she did do was she turned into like a living library for the legions of people that traveled to Dallas, the book writers and the researchers and other people. You know, sometimes she put them up at her house. She had a huge library. She collected the Um, phone numbers and addresses of witnesses and would trade that to people coming in. So she became a hub um, Mm -hmm. of the whole research community for many, many years. And I only met her a few times when she was uh, getting much older in life, although still super sharp. Um, She created a database with 10,000 names of um, people that were either witnesses or, you know, just their names showed up in the files or whatever. And it was cross-referenced to where you could find out more information about them, in particular Warren Commission files or this or that, and that she eventually actually electronified that herself. And then later on, when I put together the technology from Area 12 Foundation, we um, made that an online you know, searchable database available on the Internet. Um, she also created a detailed chronology of events that goes on for like five volumes, you know, to the minute of what's going on during particularly around the weekend of the assassination but wider than that um, so, uh, so when, uh, when some of us got together to put together a foundation initially back in the early 2000s with a little bit of financial backing um, you know she was a natural to go to to in fact, what happened is, really, is I went to a um, a special sort of private uh, conference, I guess, of people that were into this stuff, that were giving talks, you know, and so forth. Mm-hmm. And there was discussion, basically, of, you know, what do we do, particularly with Mary's legacy? She had these materials she put together, and she was looking to, you know, help in her, in her, in her old age to see what could be done to further the cause. And uh, I was sort of in the right place at the right time. I made a pitch that, you know, instead of doing more investigation and more of this and more of that, really there's so much known already. What really needs to happen is to use the Internet to publicize what's already known, to put the documents online, to put people's essays online, to have a clearinghouse for this kind of stuff, and in some sense carry on her mission that she had in her house, you know, this huge library. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so that's what we ended up doing, is, is building the website.
1: Okay. Now, I see that there's other organizations that are doing similar things that you kind of sure. work with. There's, I see, the Assassination Archives and Research Center, mm-hmm. History Matters, JFK yep. Lancer. Can you tell us a little about JFK Lancer?
0: Sure. JFK Lancer is run by Deborah Conway. Um, it's a great resource as a website. Her big claim to fame is she hosts the annual conferences in Dallas, which still go on. The research conferences where people you know, give talks and present new papers and other people just get, you know, it's a place where people get together once a year to share information. Um, And she does a great job at putting that together. So, um, you know, kudos to her. And the website is also a great information resource, including videos of past conference and talks and stuff. She's she's great for having that stuff be available. Mm -hmm. JFK Facts is a blog run by a guy named Jeff Morley. um, And that's a great place for sort of current what's happening things, you know, like these information sort of day-to-day about what's happening in these new files when they finally end up releasing some of these if any that will be a great place to get stories about what's been found in them. Um, the Assassination Archives and Research Center is run by my friend Jim Lazar in DC where I've gotten a lot of the documents that we put online on Mary Farrow and um, he's you know his, his primary focus is being the Freedom of Information Act litigator but, the, but there's a website there as well Um, History Matters is actually no longer updated. That was my original website. Right, right. That's my my baby. Okay. And there are others as well. Um, Sitka, uh, I think they renamed it now. I can't remember the name now. It used to be Citizens for Truth in the Kennedy Assassination. The website is a new name now that I'm blocking on, Um, but you can probably find it through if you search Sitka, C-T-K-A. Okay. Um, And they have a lot of great essays there. Some pretty smart people contribute there. Um, another place, uh, particularly for more current news, there's a, actually a great information resource, much more general, not devoted to the Kennedy assassination per se, but they do have occasional articles about it called whowhatwhy.org. Uh, 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 who, who, dot org, run by. Say okay. that
1: again. Slow
0: again. Who What Why org, run by Russ Baker, and it's basically investigative journalism journalism for the modern age. But there are no sacred cows, and also they are interested in this new wave of declassified records that should be happening and writing stories about it. So it's a place to go for that as well as just, you know, things about current events. Um, so mm-hmm. I recommend that as well. Excellent. So,
1: Excellent. It's a big
0: internet out there. I, you know, it sure is. You know, coming coming back to the thing you raised about what should people believe, I you know, I think it's helpful to be discerning and to latch on to people that you trust. You know, that either, you know, in real life, you meet people I, I put a lot of faith in gut feelings. You meet somebody and they just seem like they're on the level. And it's important to listen to that gut. And I think you can do the same sort of thing online, too. Like, look at, take the demeanor of people and how they, how they write about things.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: There's, there's mm-hmm. Too, much, too much arguing and junk out there. It bothers me. Um, I
1: yeah, I, I get the vibe. Discussion. My personal vibe when you say the gut thing is that if people are into yelling at you, it's probably not good for you,
0: yeah, absolutely
1: if somebody wants to have a conversation with you and respects and waits to hear your answer about things, that's probably a good good sign that,
0: that's a good guide for it yeah
1: that's that's my personal thing I don't like when people come blasting <laughs> like there's certain um certain professionals out there in the the media that have the tendency to just yell at you literally yell at you and People, I guess, like that. I don't
0: know. But, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I saw I saw John Stewart once take that down, though. Uh, Crossfire, uh, I guess it's back now in a different form, but it, many years ago, it probably goes back 15 or 20 years now, when he was a young, John Stewart was just getting into the comedy deal. And he was apparently mad at the fact that Crossfire at that point was just like yelling back and forth. It was this political show that was just A yelling at B and B yelling at A. And he went on there ostensibly just to promote his book, and he tore them to pieces. He says, he just basically started, why don't you people stop hurting America? And they and they got so angry at him for basically just, he just mocked their show. And three days later, they were taken off the air. Oh, wow. <laughs> so, so there's power yeah. in truth telling.
1: <laughs> yeah. No, wait a second. Was that the one that was like on PBS on the morning and like on the weekends or something?
0: I don't know. It wasn't PBS. I think I, I'm not sure what network it was on. To tell you the truth,
1: but yeah. Back there was like there's always like this one woman who was older, had a short haircut, and they'd always no, have her.
0: I think this, is no? no? this was a couple of guys.
1: Oh, a couple um, of guys. Okay, because there's one, one that the- I would always watch every weekend. It was just the same like kind of staunch people, and they're just like. Barking at each other back (laughs) and forth. It's kind of like something. Oh, you know, you're you're working off your hangover from Saturday night. It was when I was young in college, right? And you got your coffee. You're like, oh, look, look at these jokers. And you sit there and listen to these guys go, feeling like you're somehow informed. (laughs) 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 Man, all right, now next thing. If why can I? How would you explain why the Kennedy assassination is actually important?
0: Okay um as a murder crime itself and who done it, I think it's probably not so much anymore. I mean it's poignant, I think because it's a turning point in American history, but it is history. Um, what keeps me going at all, and you know it's uh, it's a hobby at this point, you know, I have a regular job and everything. Um, but what keeps me interested is that I think it's um, the the failure of our society to come to grips with it is the real story. And that's something that I think does endure um, because there's always crises in our country. Um, You know, if I, without stepping on toes, if I may be a little political in the current moment, you know, we have a president that many people in his own party are upset at, but won't go public with it. Right. There's this whole funny dynamic happening in American politics where Uh, people are afraid to tell the truth. And uh, there are people that that, um, are in favor of him, and people in Congress in favor of him, more power to them. Like, that's the way the system works. But what I find weird is you know, it takes, like, Bob Corker and um, uh, Jeff Flake, you know, resign from Congress and then denounce Trump. And it's like, okay, that's kind of weird, you know, if if you're going to denounce him, why don't you stay in Congress, you know, do something. So, The the process, I guess, I feel like is messed up there. And maybe that's not quite an analogy, you know, but uh, there's not enough just sort of people standing their ground and telling the truth, you know. And uh, in the area of the Kennedy assassination and historical topics like that, it's um, you can learn a lot by how uh, how the truth failed to come out, basically. And I I think you know it's. Until the story can't be talked about honestly in this country, and I mentioned things like the Ken's Burns documentary, for instance, where it, it seems to be too controversial to sort of bring up facts about Kennedy's presidency even. And that you see mm-hmm. that in other places as well. And so if do you we're, think that's if, we're, if, we're willing, if we're willing to talk about things openly, then maybe we'd be done. But it yeah, still you- seems like it's, a, it's controversial and, and too, t- too tough in some ways.
1: Right. Do you think that was self-censorship, or do you think somebody imposed that on him?
0: I have no idea. I mean, okay, it's that's pretty, hard biggest, to say. You know, I, and I don't want to read too much into that. You know, when you're making, you know, people make editorial choices all the time, and there's a lot to pack into those documents. Yeah, but that was a big one. This. That was a but big was a pretty, one to so that pretty now. big one. I think it's a pretty big one. Um, so, yeah, so I can't explain that. And I don't I don't know what his, you know, why he did it. I'm sure he's aware of it. He's a smart guy. And so what the decision making was, I have no idea.
1: But I Mm -hmm. found it interesting. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Now, looking at where we are now with President Trump, and like you said, people and his whole cabinet, how many people have been fired? I think he said you're fired at least 13 times now.
0: There's been a lot. I mean, it's, you know, it's pretty chaotic. And I know for some people it's like, well, you know, he's up against, people that don't like him and it's problematic. And I think some of that is, in fact, true, but it's also just a lot of chaos, too. And, um, you know, more than just Trump per se, what I feel is bad in this country is this political polarization where everybody's got their tribe. And that's the real problem. And the fact that people don't talk to each other as much. And we have like the, you know, the conservatives and liberals are like drifting further and further apart. And that's really...
1: Well, we've got families that don't even talk to each other right now. I know several families. The kids don't talk to the parents. And, I mean, it's a nightmare. Um,
0: It's a a big problem. I actually blame technology a bit for this because it's so easy now to go on Facebook and just hear what, what agrees with what you already think.
1: Exactly.
0: And I think that contributes to the fact that, you know, Back in the day, for better or worse, you turn on the TV and it's Walter Cronkite, whether you like it or not, you know, and people had a shared understanding of things. And there were problems with that, right? If the, if the leadership of the country is lying to you like they did in Vietnam, then having one channel or a few three channels is not so great. But still, yeah, having a yeah, common but still, base but- of information is important. And uh, we have less and less of that now.
1: I agree with you, but st- I have to say, back in the day though, too, there are plenty of kids burning their draft cards and hating their parents and everything else. So there's still that. I think the yeah. internet exacerbates the whole thing.
0: It's, yeah, yeah, but yeah, there's no, I mean, there's no perfect answer to this stuff, but, um, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I, anytime you look back and you know, oh, the days were better when you don't want to look too close.
1: Um, yeah. Uh, no, yeah, because I think there always has been a rift. But um and of course the parents and children of, you know, I don't know if it's always been that way, but it's always been at least since my parents generation, they kind of fought against their parents generation. Yeah. yeah. I think this I think that's a pretty typical thing in generational divide. I mean that's
0: what, like frankly, that. with the Kennedy assassination, you know, I feel like, well, it's your father's conspiracy, you know, and there's truth to that. It's, you know, I don't Yeah. I don't think it necessarily needs to be everybody's big thing. Um, it, ha- it has its uh, interest. But it, but, but it was it like
1: did. it's the granddaddy of the American conspiracies here, because now we've got 9-11 to contend with. Yep,
0: yeah. yep. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it used to be and, called the crime of the century, but then that was the last century, of course.
1: Yeah. So, yeah, now we've got yeah. 9-11 to contend with. How do you see yeah. the people, or, or do you see the people? We've got the 9-11 Commission. Mm-hmm. How does that stack up with the Warren Commission?
0: I I, I don't know. I, I know less about it. Um, I I know a few 9-11 stories that sort of raise my eyebrow, but I'm frankly not an expert, and I hesitate to weigh in because I'm one of these people that just likes to know too many facts before they say anything. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I think, I think you know, um, there are there was testimony they got, particularly from Norman Mineta, the transportation secretary, um, about what was happening in the situation room that seemed really weird, you know, that they seem to ignore. So I don't know what to make of it in general. Um, Mm -hmm. but, but, you know, it, it, it is an issue that I think anytime there's these presidential commissions, you know, people need to have their wits about them because they, they often do very good work and they often have blind spots and it's a big mixed bag. And, you know, um, I don't know. It is what it is.
1: I think Randy Benson told me that the 9/11 Commission report, none of it is indexed, so they.
0: Yeah, they, they... made it tough that way. The Warren Commission did the same thing. Yeah. When, when the 20, the Warren Commission made it what was worse. They actually published 26 volumes of evidence along with the report. This was like literally 15 volumes of testimony of different people, and then 11 volumes packed with all these printed exhibits, and. So a woman named Sylvia Marr, one of the early researchers, took it upon herself to basically index the whole bloody thing as the first thing she did before writing her book, mm-hmm. because they hadn't done it. So, yeah.
1: But they but they would know to do that, wouldn't they? Uh, did they just it, kind of just forget yeah, I, to I do it, it or did accident. they say on purpose they're
0: not going to do it? I, I'm, I'm surprised they published the damn thing at all. Um, I, I think the, the expectation was that it would look impressive and no one would read it. And if that was the impression, it was a fatal mistake because what happened to kick off this whole thing was that um, people like Sylvia Marr and Harold Weisberg and others read all 26 volumes, you know, 20,000 pages of stuff, whatever. And what they found was all kinds of stories and contradictions that didn't match the report itself. And that was what really the earliest books were. They weren't like wild theorizing about maybe this and maybe that. It was like, here's what they said in their report. But look at what they took in testimony. <laughs> and it mm-hmm. doesn't add up, you know, and, and that's really what got the whole thing rolling. And, uh, so maybe the war, maybe the nine eleven 11 was smarter and didn't publish 26 volumes of exhibits. I don't know. Uh, um,
1: yeah. I have another
0: story if you're interested related to, um, a, a, sort of a personal story and investigating this stuff that you might find of interest.
1: Uh, yeah, go ahead.
0: So, uh, most people probably are aware of the famous 18-minute gap where um, you know President Nixon's presidency was brought down in in no small part by the fact that he had not only tape-recorded himself in office and there was incriminating things found on the tape, but also he apparently had his secretary erase an 18-minute section, and this became a huge controversy called the 18-minute gap, and it was part of his downfall. So uh, that's just a backdrop for my story where I became interested in this Oswald in Mexico story that we've touched upon. And I went to a
1: conference. Oh, good. I'm conference. glad you're coming back today. I want to talk about that, too. <laughs> Go, keep going.
0: Yeah. Right. So I went to one of these conferences in 1999 in Dallas that Deborah Conway ran. And John Newman, who's an amazing character, he's, he was in military intelligence, actually, for a couple decades. He's written um, an amazing book about Kennedy and Vietnam and another one about Oswald uh, and the CIA. And he's got a couple of books more recently. But anyway, amazing guy. He was an advisor to Oliver Stone in the movie. So He gave an electrifying talk when the, a lot of the documents about this whole Mexico City adventure came to light in the mid-1990s. And I saw that talk in 1999, I think. And part of the talk was he showed a transcript of a Lyndon Johnson phone call with FBI Director Hoover, the morning after the assassination. This is 10 a.m. the next day, and Hoover is informing Johnson in this transcript that, well, we have up here the photograph and the tape of the man who was down there in Mexico City using Oswald's name. But the problem is neither the photograph nor the tape match his voice. Because they got FBI agents in Dallas, right, who are sitting with Oswald, And they've done a voice comparison with this guy calling himself Oswald in Mexico, meeting with Cubans and Soviets, and they've determined it's not his voice on the tape.
1: Mm -hmm, And
0: so mm -hmm. I'm like, oh, my God, what a bombshell this is. And the whole talk had much more about this whole story about, you know, new, new information about this Mexico City trip, which we could get into. It's a black hole, though. But what so I at that time, I was interested in some of the multimedia aspects for lack of a better word, I was fascinated to listen to Lyndon Johnson in these phone calls. I had already heard a couple of them where he's putting the Warren Commission together with the World War Three Stories, whatever. And so I said, I gotta I gotta get a hold of this tape and listen to him and Hoover talking about this Mexico City imposter. So a few months later I was in uh Austin, Texas, where the L B J Library is where they have these. And I um Oh, no, I, no I, I'm sorry. I was, I was back in Massachusetts, and I called them. And I said, I'm interested in uh, getting a hold of one of these uh, L.B. You know, Johnson tapes. And they said, okay, which one? And I said, uh, well, it's this one of the morning after the assassination of J. Edgar Hoover. And, and the answer is, uh,
1: you don't want that one. And i <laughs> like, "If yes, I do. They said, well,
0: the problem is it's very hard to listen to. See, he was using his vice presidential taping equipment. And I'm like, okay, uh, I have audio engineering friends. Maybe we can boost the signal or something. Would you please send it to me? And to the credit, they relented. Six dollars later, a few days later, this thing shows up in the mail. And what it is is the cassette tape of a compilation of calls, you know, from that day. And I'm listening to it, and there's a call, blah, 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 talk, 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 talk. And then right where it says on the tape label, you know, J. Edgar Hoover, 10.01 a.m., 14 minutes of...
1: <laughs>
0: right. So I call them back and I say, um, "Do you know this tape has been erased?" And they and they said, "No, no, no. See, he was using his vice presidential taping equipment, and the quality is really poor." And they said, uh-huh. "I know you told me that, but the call before it and the call after it are using the same damn equipment, and they sound fine, <laughs> right? I mean, it's, it's, I'm, I'm not making a word of this up." Uh, so, I believe you. So a few months later, I go to Austin in person. And I go up to a, the desk in the research part of the library, the LBJ library there, and I go up to somebody and say, I'm here because I'd like to talk with someone who can tell me about an issue I'm having with one of these Johnson tapes. And the guy says, oh, which tape are you talking about? And I say, well, it's the one with J. Edgar Hoover, 10 a.m., November 23rd, and his spine noticeably stiffens. He says, oh I'll get somebody who can help you. So I'm like, what the hell, you know? So so then the senior archivist comes down and brings me off to a private room and sat down on the couch, and to my face, 18 inches away, gives me this nonsense about the vice presidential tape equipment. And I'm like, okay, whatever. <laughs> so, so I go back home. Why was
1: it? What was? It, was it? Did you go into the brand of the what, what company you made it? Or
0: what, <laughs> No, which? I no, I I knew it was a lie, and I wasn't even going to yeah. go any further with it. So it was it was like it was literally funny. So I go home, and I write an essay called "The 14 Minute Gap," and I put it on my History Matters website, which was fairly popular at the time. And you know, wrote wrote both about my experience with this erase tape. And showed the transcript of what was in it, which would gives you a good clue as to why somebody might erase it. Too bad they forgot to burn the transcript too, because this, this was a transcript that Johnson's secretary would have contemporaneously transcribed and put in the files. So mm-hmm. presumably, whoever erased the tape like wasn't smart or something. I don't know. Um, and so I wrote this essay and forgot about it. And almost a year goes by. And all of a sudden, I get an email from the archivist that I sat with, you know, a year earlier at the Austin Library. And she says, Mr. Bradford, a number we've received a number of inquiries about this uh, tape that you've referred to uh, due to the essay you wrote. And we have further information. Would you like to have the further information? <laughs> so I
1: Well, read what was that. the further information?
0: I said, okay. And she sends me a audio engineering report that they had commissioned which had analyzed anomalies on some six or seven different recordings, of which this was one of them. And there was a single paragraph report from the Cutting Corporation, which is a corporation that the National Archives uses for this kind of work in general for analyzing audio stuff. Mm-hmm. And it was very simple, and the engineer said, this, this uh, section of the magnetic belt, it's actually a magnetic belt, not a tape, but same difference, um, appears to have been erased, it's, uh, it was likely intentionally erased, probably by rubbing it against the erase head of the original equipment. You know, I said a little more than that, but basically that was the gist of it. Mm-hmm. And I looked at the date of this report, and it was 1999, I believe, like over a year before I had first contacted them. So they mm-hmm. knew all along that it was erased. And it's just another one of these things that, you know, what do these library people care? But it's a little sensitive You know, and uh, they had a story about it that was obviously an idiotic story, but they were going to stick with it until it didn't work anymore. And I guess I helped uncover that one. So so, but but so here's the (laughs) denouement. So now I have the transcript of the call, which is a bombshell story, the erased tape, which is like the bombshell on the bombshell. Right. Mm -hmm. And um. And then the confirmation from the library that yes, it's erased, you know, it's not just your crazy theorizing about this, whatever. We know it's erased. And so I start trying to contact journalists. And admittedly, I'm pretty bad at that. I've gotten a little better now. I have more contacts. But at that time, I was just, you know, a hermit in my, with my computer up in the lab, whatever. But I did, made a modest effort, contacts the people. And finally, Um, and, and, but it was like lower level people and they didn't know what to do with and they didn't want to touch it. And finally I got, I had a hour long conversation with a guy who was on the Washington desk of USA Today. And he was sort of an old salt, knew a lot about the Kennedy case, was fascinated. We talked for like over an hour. He knew Robert Blakey personally, who had headed the second congressional, the congressional investigation, whatever. And he was like fascinated by the whole story. And finally then I'm like, okay, well, I've. I'm handing you the story in a silver platter, you know, here's all the materials, I'll send you the audio, you got the old, it's all wrapped up with a bow, do you want to write about it? And there was a long pause, and he said, you know, my editors here keep telling me I need to be writing more upbeat news, and I don't think this qualifies.
1: Oh, well that was, what year was that, when everybody was trying that, to be
0: upbeat? That was probably 2002 or something. So now it came out later. um, uh, A guy named Max Holland wrote actually a book about the Kennedy tapes. I'm sorry, the Johnson tapes. Mm -hmm. And in a footnote, he refers to this erasure now. So 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 now it's one of these stories that it's been admitted. It's old news and nobody knows about it.
1: (laughs) Mm -hmm. Well, maybe you should try to push it again. The stories with, you know, because of all the JFK's files coming out again. Coming for,
0: yeah, Maybe you should I'm,
1: push I'm, it again. I'm
0: pretty late. I don't think somebody no. will pick it up yeah.
1: though. Maybe. Maybe. I, I'd push it if I were you.
0: But, but it's ironic like, that, you know, the Nixon 18 minute gap roiled the country for a year and you can't get a single journalist to write about a, a no, great the morning after Kennedy was killed.
1: Oh, I know. I know. So it's, it's frustrating. <laughs> everything with the media right now is making me frustrated that's why i did this radio yeah. show because quite frankly yeah. i i don't i i think i told your wife the other night i threw out my television when the kids were in my belly i threw out my television <laughs> yeah, right. i don't believe anything <laughs> oh, no, on probably, tv quite frankly, this
0: you know, what I, you I know what I don't want to dump on all journalists too much because actually i know um several of them at this point and a lot of them are great people. I think one of the problems the media has with this case in particular is that it's too big at this point. It's too storied. So uh, so it has two problems. One is that, you know, to say anything meaningful takes more time than you can put in a, like a little column in a newspaper. You know, I mean, right. the, all the books that come out now, they're like 800 pages for crying out loud. And so mm-hmm. it doesn't fit the media format very well. The media is right. all about what happened today. So they'll write about this White House order on the on the records, but writing a whole story about Oswald in Mexico or whatever, that's like, uh, you know, it just doesn't fit. And then yeah. I think there's the other part where it's like, you know, and this is even more true of historians, I think, than uh, journalists. Like, nobody wants the conspiracy brush on them.
1: Right. Right. Yeah. I agree 100%. Yeah, the media is... Well, the media, I think, is part of the problem, too, especially in this JFK thing. And in the movie The Searchers, if people go to the Mm -hmm. searchersfilm.com, you'll see a trailer for the movie that I showed here in Providence last week. And Rex Bradford came up to talk afterwards. Um, It does talk about how the media was complicit in covering this whole thing up with JFK. And do you want to talk about that a little bit? Sure.
0: So sure. I, I think, you know, again, I think it's a complex story, and I there's actually been, even among mainstream journalists, a lot of good writing on the case, um, but overall it was a failure, I agree. And, you know, part of it is that when this happened, right, The who did the journalists go to in 1963 and 1964? Like, nobody knows about this except for the government's investigating, and they had their story, and they weren't budging from it. And so, you know, to a large extent in covering political topics or murder investigations or things like that, they get their information from, um, from the government to a large extent. Mm -hmm. And maybe that's, maybe that's one of the problems there that, you know, there are many private citizens who go around interviewing people in Dallas. And in fact, a few journalists did do that. A few of them, um, went rogue, maybe, I don't know if there's a better word than that, you know, and really got into the stuff and talked to a lot of people, and it changed our lives in some cases. I, um, there's an amazing guy named Gayton Fonzie, who was a Philadelphia um, uh, journalist, and in 1966, I think, he was, you know, he bought the Warren Commission stuff, he was a smart guy, and he, you know, and he thought they must have known what they were doing, whatever. And then he met a guy named Vince Salandria, who was one of the early critics who wrote a couple of amazing articles dissecting the single bullet theory and the other medical evidence and showing what a sham it was about this, you know, that Oswald couldn't have done it, basically. And, and, uh, Fonzie, this journalist, was intrigued and said, you know, wow, that's amazing, kind of. But he couldn't quite believe it. He said, you know, maybe I'm just, I don't know enough. I'm being fooled by this guy. I don't know. So he, so Arlen Specter lived in Philadelphia, too. So he goes to Spector, who's, you know, again, a Warren Commission staffer who was in charge of the Warren Commission's coverage of the medical evidence. There's no better resource for the Warren Commission's view of this stuff that Philandria was talking about, the single bullet theory, whatever. Arlen, Arlen Specter invented the single bullet theory, right, for the Warren Commission. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So he goes to Spectre and he asks the questions that Philandria is raising in his articles, and he says, and it changed my life to see Spectre fumble and not have an answer. Mm-hmm. And what ended up happening is he stayed as a journalist, but he ended up working as an investigator for, first for the Church Committee in the 70s, which is a whole interesting topic when they, uh, an amazing time in history where after Watergate, there were no hold bars in investigations about the intelligence agencies um, run by the Senate Committee. And then later he became a staffer for the House Select Committee, although he became disillusioned and ended up writing a book called The Last Investigation about the failure of the second congressional investigation, in his view. But so there, there are stories like that, too, of people, journalists that, you know, either stuck in journalism or left it or whatever and, you know, um, did amazing work on this and, and some of the best work. But as institutions, you know, they're sort of tied at the, tied to the hip with the government. Um, mm-hmm. In interpreting the stuff and and the channels of information are you know are flowing to them and so it's certainly in the 1960s not surprising um, that they would have gone along. It's it's interesting when people don't realize like, I, I, of course they wouldn't this is ancient history but in the late 60s actually there were a lot of mainstream journalism that was started questioning the Warren Report. There had been enough books written stuff that regular people were starting to say what in the hell is this all about. And that happened to come at the same time as the New Orleans investigation of Jim Garrison, the thing that's covered in the JFK movie, came out. Mm -hmm. And that, his investigation came to be seen, and in some cases, rightly so, as this vast overreach and a little on the crazy side. I think some of it was very unfair, but so that's a long story. But it sort of poisoned the well. And Mm -hmm. so after that. The mainstream critics in the, you know, writing in the Saturday Evening Post and the Look Magazine, the stuff, they backed off because it became crazy territory because of how, how hard the hammer came down on the Garrison investigation, uh, in some mm-hmm. ways fairly and in most cases unfairly, I think. But um, so, it, you know, again, it's one of these things that there's no, I don't think there's a simple answer. I don't think the media is, you know, 100 percent complicit in this stuff, but it's been problematic in general.
1: Yeah. Oh, I was just noticing, you said the name Fonzie, and he's the author yes. of The Last Investigation. Yes. I just noticed, is, is it his wife is, works at the Mary Farrell Foundation? Well,
0: she's she's on the board of directors. We have a board of a half a dozen people that, with me, you know, we help um, sort of steer the direction of what projects we do or whatever, and mm-hmm. I contacted her. Part I I got to meet Kate and Fonzie briefly only because um, about 10 years ago, one of the projects we did at the Mary Foundation was to take out of print books that were the good books and put them back into print and also take some of the more interesting government reports that are very hard to find and put them in print because, you know, with on-demand printing these days, you can put together something for, you know, low cost that you can print in small volumes. So we put about 20 titles back in print, and one of them was Last Investigation. So I talked to Gabe Fonzie um, several times before he died. And then um, afterwards, when I was uh, uh, putting the board of directors together back in, I don't know, about half a dozen years ago or so, um, and adding people to it, um, I thought of her because I talked to her a few times on the phone, and she agreed to join. She's a pretty sharp lady.
1: Oh, that's cool. That's cool. All right. So there's all these books that you've republished. Mm-hmm. How, okay. Yeah, re- did you have to do anything about rights and all that, or did people well, no, just I, say, I, "Yeah, I, go right ahead"?
0: And- the, well, so for the books, that acquired the rights. I mean, I negotiated a contract with Gate and paid paid royalties. I mean, it's all very small money because it was right. a low volume operation. But I um, published books from Peter Del Scott and Gate and Fonzie. Most of them were books that had gone out of print that we just simply put back in print with the author's permission. There were a couple of books, one very good book, although pretty thick, uh, mostly on the scientific evidence called Hear No Evil by a guy named Don Thomas. And I was very proud to put that book into print. And, um, uh, you know, one other, but most of them were reprints. And also some things like the Lopez, so-called Lopez Report, which is the Second, congr- the congressional investigations' formerly secret report on the Oswald trip
1: to Mexico City still redacted mm-hmm. in part. That's one of these documents that needs to have its blackouts lifted to this day. But mm-hmm. the blacked mm-hmm.
0: version I put into print as the paperback, so people could read that.
1: And what's that? That's the one I wanted to talk about yeah. when Oswald yep. went to Mexico, and it's all blacked out. And it's not all
0: blacked out, but there's a fair amount of blackout.
1: Is there <laughs> anything that's did you you did you read it
0: I've, re- I've read the report we have it online as well you
1: don't yeah the and book. what what and did you do so, you take away from that
0: so well it's, it's interesting um, they you know the Mexico City story, unfortunately is this tangled thing that has many aspects to it um, one of the things though is that they it's clear in that report and they say this openly in the report that they uncovered a lot of resistance Um in trying to interview certain people there that, you know, this was a hard story to tackle. Um, the CIA is an agency and of course the Mexican government, you know, which is, you know, any foreign government, it's hard to get access to people if they don't want you to. And sure, so sure. they had trouble interviewing some people. They also uncovered some pretty interesting things. I, I'm forgetting whether some of this is in the Lopez report or some just in other files. But so for example, you know, this whole imposter issue got raised by this, Johnson phone call I mentioned, and Mm -hmm. and other documents to talk about whether or not um, somebody was using Oswald's name down there, you know, on these tapped telephone lines. And so we have in the files now, these like, they're not really quite transcripts, the phone calls are so short, but these basically, um, I guess they're transcripts of these tapped conversations between somebody using Oswald's name, at least, let's put it that way, and somebody in the Soviet compound there. And they're pretty short, and they don't really have a lot of meat in them. But what became of interest is, um, okay, are these things authentic, first of all? you know, Do we know it's Oswald? Is, is, the, is the thing itself authentic? Because one of the stories here is that um, the CIA... So, let me back up. Back on the 23rd, um, when Hoover told Johnson, we have up here the tape of the man using Oswald's name, that became a problem, and what happened was a couple of days later, the CIA came up with a new story, and they said, oh, tapes? There were never any tapes. We only had transcripts. I don't know what you're talking about with this voice comparison. You couldn't have done one. We hadn't never had any tapes. And, and the FBI went along with this story, and so the whole story became, well, there was a big mistake. When Hoover and other people besides him talked about tapes and voice comparisons, they were just uh, having a brain fart or
1: something no they were using the vice presidential tape recorder
0: (laughs) there you go (laughs) Um, one of the problems is john newman in that same talk that i mentioned where he presented some of this stuff had this great one this this was like a memo from hoover a month later fbi director hoover in which somebody is presenting to him some idea for having a liaison with the warren commission and he scribbles in his famous scrawl on it okay but i don't I hope you're not being taken in. I can never forgive them for their lying about Oswald's trip into Mexico City. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> so, so you have stuff like uh, that in the files, too. I mean, it's, uh-huh. you know, it's, okay. it's, it's, it's a Those, rich like set of little profit.
1: Easter eggs for you, searchers. I can see why you guys are hooked. You guys are hooked.
0: No, it's, it's endless, you know, that's, that's the problem. People do, I mean, it literally is a rabbit hole. People fall down. I don't know what it is Oh, about my it,
1: gosh. You know? Now, for problem. people that are listening, could they donate? to your organization, Mary Farrell Foundation?
0: They can, actually. You- I mean, I um, th- there's, a, there's a donate page. We're happy to take it. I'd be more than happy if people instead, um, there are low-cost memberships for people that offer the ability to do unlimited searches as opposed to a handful of complimentary searches. That's the basic way that we generate some income. As all the pages are viewable, you can browse your art's content and run searches, and if you want to, to be honest, you can close your browser down and fire it up again and get more free searches. But
1: okay. One way we so try to actually p- get a little bit of money a- to run
0: the operation is through these memberships. So that's another way.
1: Okay. Um, so I everybody's got to go to maryferrell.org. Mary yeah, Mary sure. Okay. So everybody go, if you want to hook up with this, go there, check it out. And I'm, I'm looking at the website right with, now. Do we go to? If,
0: if people are university students. You know, or, or faculty for that matter, um, we offer institutional memberships to colleges and have a few of them where the ca- whole campus gets a free access for, if awesome. the university pays a bit.
1: That's awesome. So that's that is very awesome. Alright, people should check it out because this is a very awesome
0: resource yeah. people And there's you know, and not everybody is a big document weenie, but there's also some really good essays that people have written on there. I tried to put together things that I called starting points because it's such a vast topic. So if you go to the website, one of the menus is starting points, and you can click on JFK assassination or RFK assassination or other topics.
1: Yep, there's MLKs there too, Watergate, Intel investigations. And the the
0: JFK assassination in particular has a whole bunch of, like, subtopics, you know, Kennedy in Vietnam, Kennedy in Cuba, you know, aspects of the assassination, the medical evidence. Oswald in Mexico is another topic. And what they are, each of these pages then is a landing page that has a little essay, sometimes very short, like two or three paragraphs, sometimes longer, and then resources related to that. So l- links you can click on that will take you to the document that shows you that what's being written about is for real. There it is, boom. And mm-hmm, that was that was mm-hmm. the thing I really wanted to bring to this case that it's so complicated that people need a way to break it down. And so I didn't don't. I, think I did a perfect job but what I, what I attempted to do and had with some success at some places is to you know present a bit of information that's intriguing and then there's links to go explore deeper if you
1: want that was yeah no this was is great. fantastic you did a great job I'm looking at the website right now this is awesome this is awesome um, and you did you actually did too. the website what's that you did the website yourself
0: uh, I basically yeah yeah, yeah. I, I oh, wow hope it's awesome. some areas, but yeah I'm I I tell you, in this world, it's really handy to be a talented computer programmer.
1: I should say so. I should say so. <laughs> so this is that, the that's world we're
0: in, and so it came in handy for this. <laughs> <officer>. <laughs> See,
1: Obviously it We other
0: projects <laughs> too. In fact, some of, one of them has participation from other people that I know. One of the projects on there that's like a specialty area is called the CIA Cryptonym Database, and the idea there is the CIA files are full of these code words that are just impossible. Every person. It's got a code word. Every project has a code word, every organization. They don't even mention FBI. They call it, you know, ODNV. Great. And so what this is, is Wait, using what do the they call it again? The ODNV? OD, ODNV. Everything has like a two-letter prefix and then another word. And the, and okay. So if, you, if you get into this stuff, you sort of end up knowing a lot of them, but not all. Um, but so what we do on the website is have a project called the CIA Cryptogram Project where using public records, not secret information, is using those documents um, building a decoder ring, where because in a lot of the documents basically provide decodings. They say, okay, this means that, you know, when they when they reveal that to the congressional investigation or whatever. And so, using those public records, we provide this decoder ring for here's what all these hundreds of cryptonyms mean. And there's another project a guy I know named Stuart Gallander put together that I enhanced a little bit with some programming. That is basically a, what's called the Dealey Plaza witness database. And that has a picture of Dealey Plaza with a whole bunch of dots for over 200 witnesses. And for each one, you can find out where they stood, what their name is, and what they told investigators, and if they changed their story, what they told who. And you click on the link and read the whole, you know, transcript of what they said. And so, and also there's some statistics, yeah, and some surprising statistics about how many people, in fact, heard shots from the grassy you know, or smelled smoke
1: or that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. So it's, a, yeah. It's a, That's it. This is incredible. Now, I'm, I'm at your website. It's under resources. That's where people can yep. click on the CIA yeah, crypto and, under and resources. the Dealey, yeah. Dealey Plaza Witnesses. And the, oh, wow. This is yeah. great. Now, how does your family deal with this?
0: <laughs> I have a great family. They're so tolerant. I, um, one, one time uh, we traveled to Texas, actually, where my father's family is originally from, and uh, met with uh, my uncle Rex, who I was named after, and his daughter, my cousin Betty. And uh, uh, at one point, um, my wife started, you know, talking a bit about, yeah, Rex is on this thing, and oh my God, he you know, goes on and on. And Betty just looks at her and says, well, he's at Bradford, you know. So
1: I think a little bit of obsessiveness runs in the family. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Now, for everybody listening, obviously, you got to go to this Mary Farrell Foundation website. It's maryfarrell.org. You've just listened to Rex Bradford, as you see, is a fabulous person. He's very easy to get along with. And um, check it out. If you want to share any of this information with your friends, um, Shadow Citizen is archived at AmericanFreedomRadio.com, those archives, at ShadowCitizen.online. It's also archived at YouTube, Vimeo, BitChute, Steemit, and iTunes. And I typically uh, release links to all of that um, on Thursday. Um, Africa's Wednesday is the one we're live. But um, I'm just thrilled to have you on, Rex. This has been awesome. Uh, yeah, it was a pleasure to talk to you, Rachel. Enjoyed oh, it. right on. So, um, everybody, I want you to go to Mary Farrell's Foundation, check it out. Also, head over to AmericanFreedomRadio.com. If you feel like donating to them, donate to them. If you want to donate to me and to keep this show going, you can go to ShadowCitizen.online. There's a thing that says support. You can send me a donation. Um, There's all sorts of... Things on there you can buy to support Shadow Citizen. There's coffee mugs and T-shirts and sweatshirts, and you can have your picture. You can take a picture of yourself in it. It'll be on the, the fan page. Um, but I really, really, I'm so thankful for all of my listeners, and I'm thankful for Rex for showing up. And I'm just, I'm thrilled. Thank you so much. Okay.
0: All right. Yeah. Have a great day. Great. Okay. You too. Okay.
1: Bye-bye. Bye. 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 So that was it tonight, guys. Thank you so much for your time. And please, next week, I've got another great guest. And I just want to say how much I do appreciate all of you. Thank you so much, everybody. Bye-bye.